Chapter Eight of the Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. The Romance of Piracy, by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter Eight: Elizabethan Seamen and Turkish Pirates. But a much more adventurous voyage was that of a ship called the Three Half Moonas, which, with a crew of thirty-eight men and well found in arms, the better to encounter their enemies withal, set out from Portsmouth in the year 1563. In some ways the story reads like mere romance, but it has been so thoroughly well vouched for that there is not a particle of suspicion connected with it. Having set forth bound for the south of Spain, they arrive near the Straits of Gibraltar, when they found themselves surrounded by eight Turkish galleys. It should be mentioned that the Elizabethans used the word Turk somewhat loosely to mean Muslims. It was rapidly made clear that only two alternatives were possible. Flight was out of the question, and either the auker must fight to a finish, or she must be sunk. But being English and a gallant crew, they decided to fight. Now amongst those on board were the owner, the master, the master's mate, the boatswain, the purser, and the gunner as officers. When their desperate situation was realized, the owner exhorted his men to behave valiantly, to be brave, and to bear a reverse with resignation. Then, falling on their knees, they all commended themselves to God and prepared for the fight. Then stood up one grove, the master, being a comely man, with his sword and target, holding them up in defiance against his enemies. So likewise stood up the owner, the master's mate, boatswain, purser, and every man well appointed. Now likewise sounded up the drums, trumpets, and flutes, which would have encouraged any man had he never so little heart or courage in him. But next let us introduce to the reader John Fox, the ship's gunner, a man of marvellous resource, as we will see presently. Fox saw that the guns were arranged to the best effect, and that the Turks were receiving a hot fire. But three times as fast as the English shot came the infidels' fire, and the fight raged furiously with eight galleys to one big ship. The Turks advanced, and then came the time for the English bowmen to let fly their arrows, which fell thickly among the rowers. Simultaneously the English poured out from their guns a hotter fire than ever, and the Turks fell like ninepins. But meanwhile the auker was receiving serious damage below her waterline, and this the Turks seeing, the infidels endeavoured now to board the ship. As they leapt on board, many of them fell, never again to rise, the others engaging in a tremendous conflict on the auker's deck. For the Englishmen, writes the narrator in fine, robustus Elizabethan language, showed themselves men indeed, in working manfully with their brown bills and halberds, where the owner, master, boatswain, and their company stood to it lustily, that the Turks were half dismayed, but chiefly the boatswain showed himself valiant above the rest, for he fared amongst the Turks like a wood lion, for there was none of them that either could or durst stand in his face, till at the last there came a shot from the Turks, which brake his whistle asunder, and smote him on the breast, so that he fell down, bidding them farewell, and to be of good comfort, encouraging them likewise to win praise by death, rather than to live captives in misery and shame." Such was the fine gallantry of these brave men, but they were fighting against heavy odds. The Turks pressed them sorely, 
and not one of the company but behaved as a man, except the master's mate, who shrunk from the skirmish, like a notable coward, esteeming neither the valour of his name, nor accounting of the present example of his fellows, nor having respect to the miseries whereunto he should be put. The rest of the crew covered themselves with glory, but at length it was of no avail, for the Turks won the day. Then, in accordance with the historic custom of the sea, the crew of the Auker were placed in the galleys, set to row at the oars, and they were no sooner in them, but their garments were pulled over their ears, and torn from their backs, for the galley slave was always condemned to row stark naked. At length the galleys reached their stronghold at the port of Alexandria, which was well protected in those days by means of fortifications. The reader will recollect that it was stated some time back that the sailing season was confined only to the late spring and summer, and that in the winter the ships were laid up. The close time now approaching, the Christian prisoners were brought ashore to Alexandria, and cast into prison until the time came round again for the season of piracy. At this port, says the Elizabethan chronicler, the Turks do customably bring their galleys on shore every year, in the winter season, and there do trim them, and lay them up against the springtime, in which road there is a prison, wherein the captives and such prisoners as serve in the galleys are put for all that time, until the seas be calm and passable for the galleys, every prisoner being most grievously laden with irons on their legs, to their great pain. So the voyage of the Auker had come to a tragic ending. But after a time the news of this incident evidently reached England, for both the master and the owner were ransomed by their friends from their prison. The rest had to bear their ill-treatment and semi-starvation as best they would. But he who bore it all with wonderful endurance was the gunner John Fox, and, being somewhat skilful in the craft of a barber, by reason therefore made great shift in helping his fare now and then with a good meal. In the course of time, the keeper of the prison became rather fond of him, and allowed him special privileges, so that he could walk as far as the sea and back when he liked, but he was warned always to return by night, and he was never allowed to go about without his shackles on his legs. Later on, six more of the prisoners were allowed a like privilege. The life sped wearily on, and now, for fourteen sorry years, this durance vile had continued. It was the year 1577, and the winter season had come round again, and the galleys drawn up the beach. The masts and sails thereof were brought ashore and properly housed, till once more the spring should return, and the Turkish masters and mariners were now nested in their own homes, as the narrative quaintly words it. The galley slaves had again resumed their long bondage ashore, and now there were no fewer than 268 wretched Christians there, languishing in captivity, having been captured from sixteen different nations. It was then that John Fox, man of resource that he was, resolved that escape must be made, and his fellow prisoners also released. If you consider such a project as the release of nearly three hundred prisoners from the hands of these Turkish pirates, the idea seems entirely impracticable, and utterly visionary. To John Fox, however, it seemed otherwise, and this is how he set to work. After pondering over a method for a very long time, and saying many prayers that his scheme might be successful, he betook himself to a fellow prisoner, a Spanish Christian, named Peter Unticaro, who had been in captivity no less than thirty years. This man was lodged in a certain victualling house near the roadstead, 
He had never attempted escape during all those years, so was treated with less suspicion and trusted. Fox and Unticaro had often discussed their bondage, however, and at last the Englishman took the risk of making him his confidant and also one other fellow prisoner. These three men put their heads together, and Fox unfolded a method of escape. Their chances of meeting were but few and short, but at the end of seven weeks they had been able to agree on a definite plan. Five more prisoners were now taken into their confidence, whom they thought they could safely trust. The last day of the old year came round, and these eight men agreed to meet in the prison and inform the rest of the prisoners of the plan. On the 31st of December, then, this was done. It needed but little persuasion to cause these two hundred odd to join in the scheme, and Fox having delivered unto them a sort of files, which he had gathered together for this purpose, by the means of Peter Unticaro, admonished them to be ready at eight o'clock the next night, with their fetters filed through. So on the next day Fox, with his six companions, resorted to the house of Peter Unticaro. In order to prevent any suspicions of a dark deed, they spent the time in mirth till the night came on and the hour of eight drew nigh. Fox then sent Unticaro to the keeper of the road, pretending that he had been sent by one of the Turkish officials, ordering him to come at once. The keeper promptly came, and before doing so, told the warders not to bar the gate, as he should not be long away. In the meantime, the other seven prisoners had been able to arm themselves with the best weapons they could find in the house of the Spaniard, and John Fox was able to lay his hands on a rusty old sword-blade without either hilt or pommel, but he managed to make it effective. By now the keeper had arrived, but as soon as he came to the house and saw it silent and in darkness, he began to be suspicious. John Fox was ready for him, and before the keeper had retraced his steps more than a few yards, the Englishman sprang out, and calling him a villain and a blood-sucker of many a Christian's blood, lift up his bright shining sword of ten years' rust, and killed him on the spot. They then marched quietly in the direction of the warders of the road, and quickly dispatched these six officials. Fox then barred the gate, and put a cannon against it to prevent pursuit. So far all had worked with remarkable smoothness. They next proceeded to the jailer's lodge, where they found the key of the fortress and prison by his bedside. They also found some better weapons than the arms they were using. But there was also a chest full of ducats. To three of the party this wonderful sight proved irresistible. Fox would not have anything to do with the money, for that it was his and their liberty which he sought for, to the honour of his God, and not to make a mart of the wicked treasure of the infidels. But Unticaro and two others helped themselves liberally, and concealed the money between their skin and their shirt. These eight men, armed with the keys, now came to the prison whose doors they opened. The captives were ready and waiting. Fox called on them to do their share, and the whole band, between two and three hundred, poured forth. To each section did Fox bestow some duty. The eight prison warders were put to death, but some of the prisoners Fox had wisely sent down to the water, where they got ready for sea the best galley, called the Captain of Alexandria. Whilst some were getting her launched, others were rushing about bringing her masts and sails and oars and the rest of her inventory from the winter quarters. The whole place was seething with suppressed excitement. Meanwhile, there was a warm contest going on at the prison before all the warders were slain. The latter had fled to the top of the prison, and Fox with his companions went after them with ladders. 
blood and slaughter were all round them. Three times was Fox shot, but by a miracle the shot only passed through his clothing on each occasion. But as if by way of punishment for their greed, Onticaro and his two companions who had taken the ducats were killed outright, being not able to wield themselves, being so pestered with the weight and uneasy carrying of the wicked and profane treasure. In this conflict one of the Turks was run through with a sword, and not yet dead, fell from the top of the prison wall to the ground. Such a noise did he then begin to make, that the alarm was raised, and the authorities were amazed to find the Christian prisoners were paying their ransoms by dealing death to their late masters. Alexandria was now roused, and both a certain castle as well as a strong fortress were bestirring themselves to action. It seemed as if the prisoners, after all their years of suffering, after having brought about so gallant an escape, were now to fail, just as victory was well in sight. It was a saddening thought. But there was one road of escape, and one only. Whilst some of the prisoners were still running down to the sea carrying munitions, some additional oars, victuals, and whatever else were required for the galleys, others were getting ready for pushing off. The last of the Christians leapt aboard, the final touch was given to the gear, and up went the yards and the sails were unloosed. There was a good breeze, and this, the swiftest and best of all Alexandria's ships, was speeding on at a good pace. But ashore the Turks have already got to their guns, and the roar of cannon is heard from both the castle and fortress. The sea is splashing everywhere with Turkish ball, and the smoke is swept by the breeze off the shore. Five and forty times did these guns fire, and never once did a shot so much as graze the galley, although she could see the splashes all around her. On and still on sailed this long, lean galley, increasing her speed all the time, till at length, by God's mercy, she, with her long-suffering crew, who by years of involuntary training had learnt to handle her to perfection, were at last out of range of any Turkish cannon. In the distance they could see their late masters coming down to the beach, like unto a swarm of bees, and bustling about in a futile endeavour to get their other galleys ready for the sea. But it was of little avail. The Christians had long been preparing for flight in the captain, so the Turks found it took an unbearable time in seeing out the oars and masts and cables and everything necessary to a galley's inventory, lying hidden away in winter quarters. They had never suspected such a well-planned escape as this. Nothing was ready, all was confusion. And even when the galleys were at last launched and rigged, the weather was so boisterous, there was such a strong wind that no man cared about taking charge of these fine-weather craft just at that time. So the escaping galley got right away, and then, as soon as they were a safe distance away, Fox summoned his men to do what Nelson was to perform less than three centuries later at almost this very spot. You remember how, after the glorious Battle of the Nile, when the British fleet had obtained such a grand victory over the French, Nelson sent orders through the fleet to return thanksgiving to Almighty God for the result of the battle. All work was stopped, and men who had spent the whole night risking death and fighting for their lives, disheveled and dirty with sweat and grime, now stood bareheaded and rendered their thanks. So it was now on the galley captain. Fox called to them all, willing them to be thankful unto Almighty God for their delivery, and most humbly to fall down upon their knees, beseeching him to aid them unto their friend's land, and not to bring them into another danger, sith he had most mightily delivered them from so great a thraldom and bondage. It must have been a momentous occasion. 
men who, after being prisoners for thirty years and less, men who had just come through a night of wild excitement, men who had fought with their arms and sweated hard to get their galley ready for sea, men who even at the last minute had barely escaped being blown into eternity by the Turkish cannon, now halted in their work and made their thanksgiving, whilst most of them could hardly realize that at length they were free men, and the time of their tribulation was at an end. And then they resumed their rowing, and instead of working till they dropped for faintness, each man helped his neighbor when weariness was stealing over the oarsmen. Never did a more united ship's company put to sea. One object alone did they all possess, to come to some Christian land with the least possible delay. They had no charts, but Fox and his English fellow seamen knew something about astronomy, and by studying the stars in the heavens they roughly guessed the direction in which they ought to steer. With such haphazard navigation, however, they soon lost their position when variable winds sprang up. Those light draft ships made a good deal of leeway, and as the wind had been from so many points of the compass, they were now in a new maze. But troubles do not come singly. They were further troubled by their victuals giving out, so that it seemed as if they had escaped from one form of punishment, only to fall into a worse kind of hardship. As many as eight died of starvation. But at last, on the twenty-ninth day after leaving Alexandria, the others picked up the land again, and found it was the island of Candia. Their distance made good had thus been about 350 miles northwest, which works out at about 12 miles a day. But though this is ridiculously small, it must be borne in mind that their courses were many and devious, that to row for twenty-nine consecutive days was a terrible trial for human endurance, and latterly they were rowing with empty stomachs. They came at length to Gallipoli in Candia and landed. Here the good abbot and monks of the convent of Emerciates received them with welcome and treated them with every Christian hospitality. They refreshed these poor voyagers and attended to their wants until well enough to resume their travels. Two hundred and fifty-eight had survived, and good nourishment, with kindly treatment on land, restored their health and vigor. We need not attempt to suggest the warmth of the welcome which these poor prisoners received, and the congratulations which were showered upon them in having escaped from the hands of the Turks. It was in itself a remarkable achievement that so many had come out alive. As a token and remembrance of this miraculous escape, Fox left behind, as a present to the monks, the sword with which the Englishman had slain the keeper of the prison. Esteeming it a precious jewel, it remained hanging up in a place of honor in the monastery. When the time came for the captain to get under way again, she coasted till she arrived at Tarento, in the heel of Italy, and so concluded their voyage. They were once again in a Christian land and away from their oppressors. The galley they sold at this port, and immediately started to walk on foot to Naples. Yes, they had escaped, but by how little may be gathered from the fact that the Christians having started their long walk in the morning, there arrived that self-same night seven Turkish galleys. But the latter were too late. Their captives were now inland. Having reached Naples without further adventure, the Christians separated, and according to his nationality made for their distant homes. But Fox proceeded first to Rome, arriving there one Easter Eve, where he was well entertained by an Englishman, who brought the news of this wonderful escape to the notice of the Pope. Fox was without any means of livelihood, and it was a long way to walk to the English Channel. So he determined to try his luck in Spain. The Pope treated the poor man with every consideration, 
and sent him on his journey with a letter to the king of Spain. "'We in his behalf do in the bowels of Christ desire you,' wrote his holiness, "'that, taking compassion of his former captivity and present penury, "'you do not only suffer him freely to pass throughout your cities and towns, "'but also succour him with your charitable alms, "'the reward whereof you shall hereafter most assuredly receive.'" Leaving Rome in April 1577, Fox arrived in Spain apparently the following August. The Spanish king appointed him to the office of gunner in the royal galleys at a salary of eight ducats a month. Here he remained for about two years, and then, feeling homesick, returned to England in 1579, who, being come into England, as we read in Hacklet, went unto the court and showed all his travel unto the council, who, considering of the state of this man, in that he had spent and lost a great part of his youth in thraldom and bondage, extended to him their liberality, to help to maintain him now in age, to their right honour, and to the encouragement of all true-hearted Christians. Such, then, was the happy ending to Fox's travels sixteen years after his ship had set forth from Portsmouth. He had shown himself not merely to be a man of exceptional physical endurance, but a man of considerable resource and a born leader of men in times of crisis and despair. We may well relish the memory of such a fine character. End of chapter 8